This is our sixth week in our present series, Thy Kingdom Come, getting to the heart of the revolutionary message of Jesus. And in the last few weeks we've been looking at how we are to enter the kingdom of heaven and then the question that we've been addressing uh, last week and uh, a little bit the week before as well is um, what does it mean to be a, a citizen of our kingdom? What is expected of us by God? And we've been saying that the kingdom of heaven is the upside down kingdom. It has values which are very different to the values of this world. The very opposite. And to enter the kingdom of heaven, or to enter, if you like, another way, of, another way of putting the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, is God's new society. It involves us unlearning and relearning everything. We need to start all over again and think in totally different ways from the ways that we have perhaps otherwise thought up to this point in our lives. And uh, that is why Jesus told uh, religious Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. That he needed to be born all over, to start afresh and to rethink absolutely everything. The, the rich young ruler also needed to rethink his value system and uh, prioritise God instead of money as he had been doing previously. And then there was the, the woman at the well that uh, Jesus met, the Samaritan woman. But she needed to sort out all of her relationships and uh, sexual partners to enter the kingdom. On one occasion, another occasion, Jesus was asked by an expert in the law, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as we discovered then, the question that was being asked is, not how do I get to heaven when I die, but rather, how do I enter into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God? And uh, Jesus told him a story about a good Samaritan who took care of his Jewish neighbour. And then following that story, Jesus said to this man, go and do likewise. In other words, if you're going to enter into my kingdom, into my new society, you will need to love those that you presently regard as enemies and not just love your friends. And it goes without saying that uh, to become a member of the kingdom of God calls for a radical and a foundational change in the way that we see everything, the way that we look at ourselves, how we think, how we speak, and also how we act. Last week's uh, study, if you were here then, you know that that was entitled The Kingdom Manifesto. Now, most of us are very aware of, of, of what a manifesto is, is. It's a published declaration of the intentions, motives, views of an individual, a group, a political society, or of a government. And that is why we called the passages that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7 often also called the Sermon on the Mount uh, we called it the Kingdom Manifesto because what we have here are three wonderful chapters and in those chapters we have the principles and the values of what it means to be a citizen of the Kingdom of Heaven what it looks like what does God's new society look like in this world and much of last week's uh, talk was focused on how the standards of God's kingdom are so much higher than what was the conventional wisdom and the conventional morality of the religious elite in the first century in Jesus' time, the Pharisees and the scribes. You see, their morality was based on what they did not do. And they thought that they were righteous if they did not murder, did not commit adultery, did not lie and cheat and steal. 
They thought that was good enough. They thought it was good enough for them just to love their friends. But Jesus showed them that with the kingdom, the bar has been raised for those who belong to his new society. And the Pharisees focused on not doing any wrong. Whereas Jesus said that the righteousness of the kingdom is all about a changed heart to do what is right. The values of God's kingdom are no longer an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But rather, the values of the kingdom are turn the other cheek and go the second mile. The values of the kingdom are no longer just love those who love you, but to love others, to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. So, being a follower of Jesus, being a citizen of the kingdom, isn't some outward conformity to a set of rules, but it's an inward change of heart. It's not simply not doing wrong, but rather it's actively and energetically and enthusiastically doing what is right. It means bringing flavour, God's flavour, into a, a, a world that needs more saltiness. It's bringing God's light into a world which is dark. Which that brings us onto the next section in the Kingdom Manifesto, part two. And I'm going to attempt to do something that I might regret today, but I'm attempting to grab teaching from Matthew chapter 6 and chapter 7. So it's a big ask this morning. And what I'm going to do is provide you with a number of key principles or key values of what it means to be a Christian from these two chapters. And needless to say, we're not going to get into any depth this morning uh, as I present these, these counter-cultural uh, values. They stand against the prevailing mood of uh, modern society. Um, I was saying last week that uh, just a few years back, probably seven or eight years ago now, I spoke on the Sermon on the Mount for 25 weeks. And what we're uh, attempting to do here is a quick overview of the three chapters in just two weeks. So, hold on. Okay. Chapter um, 6. The screen is already up there. I didn't realize that was there. It commences with three spiritual practices. Giving to the needy, prayer and fasting. And the subject hasn't uh, changed here. Jesus is showing us what the kingdom looks like. So let's look at these verses. And um, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I do encourage you to open your Bibles. Don't just rely on what's on screen in front of you. And just follow this through, okay, to see how the whole uh, structure of this kingdom manifesto holds together in the three chapters. Okay. Chapter 6, verse 1. Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. Verse 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners 
and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on and on as people of other religions do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. At that point, uh, you will note in your Bibles that um, Jesus then provides some extra words on, on prayer and provides the disciples with what is commonly known by us as the Lord's Prayer with that verse, which is a key verse for our uh, studies, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And then in verse 16, it goes on to the similar theme here, we're talking about um, these acts. Firstly, acts of righteousness and giving to the needy. Secondly, prayer. Now thirdly, fasting. And when you fast, don't make it obvious, as the hypocrites do. For they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for fasting but I tell you the truth that is the only reward they will ever get but when you fast comb your hair and wash your face then no one will, no, no one will notice that you're fasting except your father who knows what you do in private and your father who sees everything will reward you ok the first thing that we need to say here is Jesus does not say if you give to the needy if you pray if you fast it's when. Now, these spiritual principles are assumed uh, to be practiced by citizens of his kingdom. And it's taken for granted that they are part and parcel of the, the Christian faith. So, in those readings I've just put up on screen for you, what is the main lesson? What's the main principle, the main value? Well, kingdom value number one is this. Live your life for God's approval not for the approval of people. So it's going to be very practical today, very down to earth. Principle number one, value number one, live your life for God's approval, not for the approval of other people. You see, God's people are called to be radically different. They're called to be countercultural. And Jesus says here, don't make a great big show of your personal devotion. Don't make a big show over your generosity of heart. Uh, there, there are people around who, who are just like that. Although he doesn't mention them here by name, the people that he is referring to are probably the Pharisees. Because we can see that from other scriptures. And I think that we can safely assume that. And what Jesus is saying that don't make a show when you're giving to the needy. Don't announce it with trumpets. Don't shout about it on the street corners. Just do it. Just do it before God. Do it for God's approval, not for the approval of others. And when you pray, don't pray long, impressive prayers with flowery words and language. Don't pray to impress others. God isn't impressed by you just babbling on and on and on and on and on. Prayers between you and God. Just keep it that way. And when you're fasting, don't look gold and somber. Tidy yourself up, wash your face, comb your hair. Don't do this for the approval of other people so that they think, oh my word, that person's fasting. They must be a spiritual giant. Don't do that. It's between you and God. You see, the world in which we live 
focuses on creating the right image and it's about marketing yourself and it's about self-promotion and it's about making an impression on, on, on other people and the hype and the glitz and the outward show but Jesus is saying his kingdom is not like that at all in fact it's the opposite it's about not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing it's about being self-deprecating it's about being self-effacing it's about behind the scenes goodness and devotion and generosity and there's nothing ostentatious or nothing showy or nothing pretentious about this at all I love the, the quote I've used it many times over the years of John Wimber who once said that um, he used to encourage Christians everywhere that they should live their lives before an audience of one that's brilliant isn't it and that's exactly what Jesus is saying here that we are to live our lives not before others to impress them but we are to live our lives before an audience of one you know it's a, it's a funny old world in which we live in it's a world where dishonesty and immorality are often accepted and admired and goodness and mercy are often scorned upon have you noticed that? I don't know how often you've noticed people taking a sideswipe at those who are Christians by calling them a bunch of do-gooders. Yeah? <laughs> I, 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 I often hear this. And it's insulting. It's meant to be as a criticism, not as a compliment. When I hear that, I, I, I tell you my, what I want to say. I'm not sure if I've ever said it. I might have. You know, sort of when people are called do-gooders in a, a, a slanderous way. And I just want to say, and your problem is? Your problem is, what's so wrong with doing good? Why should that be such a bad thing that causes someone to slow your character? And I thought about that. Well, apart from prejudice, and there's an awful lot of prejudice around, the only other thing I could think of is that some people are criticising not the act of kindness itself but they are criticising the manner in which those people do good it's not what they do but it's how they do it and I really need to cut to the chase here and say to you that it's possible to display one's act of kindness or charity in a showy way that you're doing it for others that there's that air of self-righteousness or self-satisfaction and that often ruffles other people's feathers and I'm sure that you have come across people who do good but then the problem is they look so jolly smug about it afterwards and I think that's what Jesus had a problem over here <coughs> that's his issue he didn't have a problem over what the Pharisees did he had a problem over how they did it they announced it with trumpets. They announced it from the street corners. All the good that they were doing. And Jesus says here, When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that, you may, uh, so that your giving may be in secret. I think that's a fantastic illustration, isn't it? Very visual. And, you know, sometimes a picture paints a thousand words. Let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And I think I told you before, in my first church, there was a pianist that his left hand didn't know what his right hand was doing as well. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, yes, okay. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> Do you remember that game show in the 1980s, Name That Tune? Remember that? You know, you get, you get more points if you could name a tune that was being played by the least number of notes being played. Well, after this guy was playing, I couldn't name that tune after he'd done four, 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 four verses, a, a chorus, and, and, and a bridge. I had no idea. Name that tune in about 437 or something. But you see, what, what Jesus is saying here about the left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing wasn't speaking about church pianists. He said, your father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Wow. What's that mean? What sort of reward? How do we get that? Is it a little bit of a bigger mansion in heaven? Is it some extra diamonds in that golden crown? I know some people believe that it's uh, about material rewards here in this life. Well, I, I, I don't go with that. And I beg to differ with them. But what I believe that the reward is, this reward speaks of a deep satisfaction that we get from seeing the hungry fed and the naked clothed and the sick healed and the oppressed freed. And you see, if our action in the first place was motivated by love for God and love for others, then surely to see that being done will be our greatest reward. Are you with me? Nothing else would be needed. I know that some of you in this congregation this morning work with older people. You visit them, you assist them with shopping, you spend time with them because they have no other social interaction throughout the week. You give them so much. But you, in response, are rewarded by the smiles and the conversation and the friendship and the happiness shared. Many of you, as we have heard from Nick this morning, work with children. You teach them about Jesus, someone who can become their friend. You listen carefully to their childlike inquiries. You watch them go closer to the Lord. And you become aware that you are playing a major part in the people that they will eventually become. And there is that sense of reward in itself, yes? I know that some of you respond to the needs of children throughout the world by sponsoring children in various countries. I know that many of you have given so much to the, uh, the sponsorship of, of children, babies in Malawi. And you know that your gifts are saving lives. You see, we've been called to be God's secret agents, dispensing His joy and His peace and His kindness and compassion and His mercy and His friendship and finance and acceptance and time and trust and encouragement to those in need. And we don't do it to get our name in lights. We really don't. And we don't do it in order to be awarded on the Queen's New Year's Honours list. But we do it because we are motivated by love. Love for God and love for others. And then Jesus moves on and he talks to them about uh, not storing up treasures for themselves um, in this world to make sure that they're rich towards God he tells them there in um, Matthew chapter 6 verse 24 that no one can serve two masters either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve both God and money you see apart from Jesus teaching on the kingdom which is the subject he taught on more than any other subject the subject when he is speaking about money or possessions or wealth 
is something that is the second most popular of all of his subjects. Somebody said that uh, some 30% of what Jesus taught had a connection with wealth, money, or possessions. I don't think statistics are that important. Perhaps the more important question is, why? Why did Jesus speak about those things so much? And the answer to that is very easy, I believe. The answer to that is because all of those things, money, is the number one rival to God for the human heart. And that leads us to our second principle here, our second value. Money is God's number one rival for your heart. Make sure that you get your priorities right. I quoted uh, Billy Graham just recently when he said that if a person gets his attitude to money straight, then it helps to straighten out every other issue in his life. I believe that that's right. Because the right attitude to money can unlock a healthy spiritual life. Jesus says in verse 21 of the same chapter, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's figure this one out. God asks us to look to him, for him to fulfill, to, um, fulfill our greatest desires. It's in him that our security is found. It's in him that we find significance and our identity as his child. It's in him that we find fulfillment for all that enslaves us. It's in him that we find satisfaction and fulfillment. And yet, money comes along and says, look at me, look at me, look at me. I will give you security. You see, we have a saying, don't we, about having a secure future. What does that mean? Having a secure future, it means being financially well off. Yes? And money says, do you want significance? Then, focus on me. And I will make you feel that you are someone. Make you feel important. Do you want identity? Then look to me. I will enable you to purchase it. You'll be able to choose the right house in the right neighbourhood, drive the right car, wear the right clothes. If you want freedom, then earn enough to attain what the world calls financial freedom. If you want pleasure, it's not God that you want, it's me. Because there is nothing that I can't buy. Is it satisfaction or fulfilment you want? Then just buy the next thing that your heart desires. So it's so subtle all of this. Money promises all those things that only God can ultimately bring. Security, significance, freedom, fulfillment, satisfaction, identity, pleasure. But money's promises are hollow and superficial and short-lived. It was the, um, the, the reformer Martin Luther who once said that there are three conversions which are necessary for us. There's the conversion of our mind, there's the conversion of our heart, and there's the conversion of our purse as well. The purse, he said, is the most difficult. Again, when we look at it, uh, materialism and consumerism is so woven into the fabric of Western society. The cracks are showing. And uh, I don't know if you knew this, but the, the biggest area of tension in marital breakdowns is money. 
and spending faster than we're earning. It's a major problem, personally and also on a national level too. People are feeling crushed beneath uh, the weight of personal debt. They can't see a way out. And all of this is being fueled by the advertising industry which is presently spending about £18 billion to tell us why we should buy their products. What's the best-selling book in the world? Anybody tell me? The Bible. Yep, that's right. A hundred million copies or thereabouts sold every year. But if you included catalogues as books, then the IKEA catalogue wins hands down. 208 million catalogues in 17 languages in 28 countries in 38 editions. More than twice the number of Bibles which are sold. That's just one company with one catalogue. And let's not forget that catalogues are sort of on their way out, that more things are being done now through internet sales. Food for thought. Well, I feel very frustrated this morning. I just want to teach on this for about six hours. I really do. And we haven't got six hours. There's so much, but I didn't want a, a third Sunday on the Manifesto of the Kingdom you know, having a series almost within a series. But this is important stuff for us to understand what it means for us to be Christians in this world. If you've got your Bibles there, you'll know the next uh, section, chapter uh, 6, verse 25 to 34. It's all about worry and anxiety. Now, if you're reading uh, NIV Bible, any of you got NIV Bibles here, New International Version? you will see that there is a subsection there. What's the subsection say? Can anybody tell me? Sorry? Do not worry. Now, I think that's a little bit misleading for the, um, those who put the NIV Bible together. That's a little bit worrying. And I, I, to, to be honest, I wish they'd not done that. Because it seems to suggest that now we're onto a new subject. No, we're not onto a new subject at all. Because Jesus, in verse 24, which was the last verse of the previous section, has been talking about it impossible to serve both God and money. The next verse, and not forgetting that when this was put together, there were no chapters or verses, all subheadings. The next verse is, therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Okay? Now, for anybody who's been in this church any length of time, you will know the saying that we've heard many times before. Whenever you find a therefore in scripture, ask what it is. Therefore, that's right. Therefore is a, is, is, is a connection word. It's connecting what has gone on previously to what is now about to be said. And I really don't have time to develop this this morning, but it appears that Jesus is linking worry with those who have substituted money for God. This is an important point, actually. Jesus is speaking, uh, linking worry with those who have substituted money for God. In other words, what I believe that Jesus is saying here is that worry is a byproduct of not giving God his rightful place in your lives. This is one passage. It, it links. The subject is the same. You know, Jesus didn't one day think, well, I'm going to speak about money here. Now, now what else can I talk about? Oh, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about worry or anxiety. No, 
It's the same subject. It follows through. And conversely, what Jesus is saying that those who serve God rather than money can rest on God's faithfulness. And then Jesus concludes that section by saying, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness or justice. And all these things. What things? What's what's he talking about? All these things. Well, he's talking about the basic necessities of life. What you will wear, what you will eat, what you will drink. All these things will be added to you as well. Moving on to chapter 7. Oh my word, and time's going. The next kingdom value is don't judge others. Just remember how fallible you are. Let's have a look at those verses at the beginning of chapter 7. Do not judge others and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you, can see, when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite! First get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. What I find quite incredible is that if you were to ask your average Joe or Mary blogs who isn't a Christian, to provide you with some words that would describe Christians. In their top five words, I believe that you would find the word judgmental. And I find that rather ironic. I really do. Because Jesus called his kingdom, his new society, to be those who are non-judgmental. So why is it that Christians are often regarded as judgmental? Is it perhaps because of um, the media caricatures and they, they believe these caricatures too readily? I think many of you might know Dot Cotton there from EastEnders who is now up on screen and looking at you. And before you ask, no, I don't watch it. You know, she's portrayed, her character's portrayed as someone who looks down her long knows at others with disapproving and uh, anybody who disapproves with her narrow perspective on life. Again, I'm someone that uh, really does enjoy watching crime drama on television and I can almost guarantee that whenever someone is presented who is a religious person or a Christian is introduced into the drama, they will be presented in one of two ways. On the one extreme you will have those holier than thou Um, sanctimonious, smug, pompous people looking down their long spiritual noses at those people that they regard as spiritually inferior you know, those who are fundamentalists and dogmatic and judgmental but on the other hand there's another extreme of people who are presented on television and that is Christians who are portrayed as wet, woolly and wishy-washy people who are spineless and insipid who don't have a backbone and are bland and uninteresting. But you see, both portrayals are, are wrong, I believe. And they're both unappealing and unattractive. And I'm not really sure why Christians are often tagged with being judgmental. Because most Christians I know are actually gracious. 
and compassionate and are people who are slow to point the finger but anyway Jesus gives the antidote here uh, to judgmentalism and he says that the antidote for, uh, to judgmentalism is self-appraisal that we need to take a long hard look at ourselves before we ever point the finger at anyone else you know the old saying wasn't it you know, if you point a finger there's three pointing back to you well, I think that's a, sort of a good concept that we are what we are by God's grace alone and even though you know, so we are what we are by God's grace alone we're still not perfect and we require humility and patience and faith and realising that God is not finished with that person yet but I could just uh, imagine you know the disciples and I sometimes try to put myself in their shoes and just imagine listening to what Jesus had to say for the very first time I can imagine that there were some chuckles of delight you know with this illustration and I put a, a sort of a cartoon up on screen for you there which uh, gives the sort of mental idea of what Jesus was talking about uh, and it's hilarious it's countercultural. moving on chapter 7 verse 12 we have another great principle of the kingdom do to others whatever you would like them to do to you you know if Jesus had said don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you that would have been easy wouldn't it really don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you dead simple no problem at all there that was the standard of the Pharisee but Jesus raises the bar this is much more challenging doesn't let us off the hook I love the way that the message writes this it puts it this way no tit for tats no more tit for tat stuff live generously here is a simple rule of thumb for behaviour ask yourself what you want people to do for you then grab the initiative and do it for them so much more I could say on that this morning don't settle for an easy life Jesus never intended that his kingdom value five Jesus said that you can enter God's kingdom only through a narrow gate the gateway to life is very narrow and only few ever find it in Jesus illustration you know the illustration there are two gateways and there are two roads there's the narrow road and the broad road the broad road says Jesus is spacious and it's roomy and on this road there is no boundary you can do what you like on this road you don't have to give up anything you can live a life of ease on this road you can be angry and proud you can hate your enemy you can be full of lust you don't have to pray or give to the needy or fast you can hold on to all your money you can be ambitious and if someone doesn't like you, if someone does something wrong to you, you can retaliate as much as you like and you can criticize to your heart's content. The broad road is a road without any boundaries. But the, the narrow road is the road of the kingdom manifesto. And if I were to give you a homework project, you know, for this week, go home and open your Bibles and start at the beginning of uh, Matthew chapter 5. I would tell you, go carefully through the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> and in each section, ask yourself a question. 
Am I on the narrow road or am I on the broad road? Do I pass as a citizen of the kingdom? Am I pure in heart? Do I forgive others? Am I merciful? Am I generous with my finance? Has money got a hold on me? Am I vengeful? Am I an angry person? And so forth. And let's quickly finish. Kingdom value number six. The kingdom is about obedience, not about words. Jesus says in chapter 7, that should be, verse 21. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father will enter. Again, Jesus here is describing people who make a verbal profession of the Christian faith. And that's all there is. It's nothing beyond words. And Jesus said, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who actually do uh, the will of my Father in heaven. And some of you might be asking right now, well, what is God's will? What does it mean to be in his will? His will for the Christian is everything that we have studied in the last two Sundays in this kingdom manifesto in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7. You see, talk is cheap. Anyone can talk a great faith. But the kingdom is about how we live our lives, our values, our ethics, how we use our money, the way that we love, the way that we forgive, what we are motivated by. Uh, Paul comes out in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 20 with this great verse. He says, For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It is living by God's power. And then, and I'm sure many of you will be glad, the Sermon on the Mount, this kingdom manifesto, finishes, concludes, with Jesus explaining a parable of two builders. It's uh, one that you probably knew from Sunday school. The person who hears and chooses not to obey what he hears is just like that man who builds his house upon the sand. But the one who hears and then chooses to obey is like the one who builds his house upon a rock. And that's our challenge. We've been doing lots of listening over the last few weeks. But if that hearing is not being translated into living, then all we're doing is building on sand. Let's have a look at those six values again. Write them down if you've got some paper. I can pass them on to you. Just send me an email. I'll send them to you. First, kingdom value. And this is for all of us. This wasn't for just the original disciples. This is practical stuff. Day by day. Live your life for God's approval. Not for the approval of people. Secondly, money is God's number one rival for your heart. Make sure you get your priorities right. Number three, don't judge others. Just remember how fallible you are. Four, do to others whatever you would have them do to you. Five, don't settle for an easy life. Jesus never intended that. And six, the kingdom is all about obedience, not about words. Guys, if you'd like to come back, we will sing a, a, a song. And, and would you like to stand with me, please? And we're going to pray.